this time on Watchers of Tomorrow, for deaths and a funeral. Hello everyone, I am Gep and welcome to Watchers of Tomorrow, the sci-fi critique philosophy and serial killer show adventure i'm joined as always by my friend and co-host dr Isix. hi <laughs> this week we watched wolf in the fold oh uh, what, what, what do we fold uh, get folded up today yeah like sheeps you need to fold them sheep so that they fit in your pocket and this is how to, i assume shepherds spend a lot of time doing is catching and folding sheep yeah, you because know, you, know, you know, sheep they give us uh, wool and things like that, and you know that it's it's, it's wool is turned into like uh, you know, clothing. So obviously, since you can sh- fold clothing, you could fold sheep and then store them in your pockets. Yes, if you can fold a wrench, you can dodge a ball. <laughs> this episode is another one written by Robert Block, who wrote Psycho, the book, not the movie. Uh, and uh, he's also done a couple other uh, Star Trek episodes, which we've already covered. Uh, and uh, one of them uh, quite recently, like uh, Cat's Paw, correct? Uh, yeah, I believe Cat's Paw. I forget the other. Uh, um, s- no good episodes. Uh, what are little girls made of? Yeah, so far, no good episodes. I will say this one's better than his, his previous two outings, but yeah, you know, there, there's some things like, yeah. <laughs> I was just thinking, like, how I've never actually read the original Psycho, of the book, so... Is it just that screenwriting is a very, very different skill to novels, or is, should I not try to read that? I'm not sure. Um, I think it might be. You know, there's a bit of a thunder, thunderstorm here. Uh, if you're if you're hearing lightning and thunder on the, the uh, on the recording here, folks, it's okay. I, I'm not being attacked by Thor. It's very thematically appropriate. Yes, <laughs> it is very thematic. Uh, the. But uh, yeah, there is some. It might come down to you know what, what kind of writer you are, maybe your personality, uh, your your built-in uh, skill set. Because you you get writers like uh, say uh, J. Michael Straczynski, who has done TV, he's written books, uh, and he also uh, uh, writes a bunch of comics and things like that. And you know you know people maybe are critical of one or the other, but rarely do you find someone who's like, no, he's just not good at this entire genre. But you know. But yeah, you know, so he seems to be able to be multifaceted, multi-medium, um, media, sort of. Hmm. Uh, but seems to be doing okay at least. It does seem like every time they get like a famous author to write one of these episodes, it doesn't turn out as well as when one of the like main writing cast does it for original mm-hmm. series. Yeah, but uh, it might also be some uh, factors where they don't know the characters as well, and so that makes it a little weird, and then they thinking it's like, oh, this is what the show is about, and they maybe have only seen a little bit of it, but maybe that's why, the, you know, this is third time writing a, an episode, so it's so it's gotten better. <laughs> maybe. This is the Jack the Ripper episode, which many yes. people know of, and it's such a dumb premise that it's like, sticks in the mind. Yeah. <laughs> So, so it's like okay, we need something that's gonna get people in the you know to sit down and watch this. Hmm, we need some, and it's gonna be a murder mystery of some sort. So, what's a famous murderer? There's only one, apparently. <laughs> well, in the '60s too. We have to remember that yes. this was written in the mid '60s, and we have had a good thirty years of murder fascination since this time. Oh, more than that. Yeah, really. <laughs> well, so it's, I was just reading this this like history of the fascination of serial killers, and it really kind of kicked off in the in the mid '80s. Did not know it was uh, that late. I thought it was earlier, actually. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, the fascination's been around, but the real kind of cultural shift into the fascination with serial killers is like a big pop culture force kind of happened in the '80s. I wonder how much that might be attached to uh, the the rise of the slasher film, yeah. or you know, if it, you know, what, what are the you know, you know, simultaneous growths of uh, some sort of underlying shift in the culture, or was one affecting the other, or something else? Well, mm-hmm. probably one of those, but we aren't going to get to that for a bit because we're still back in the happy <laughs> '60s where the most famous serial killer was still Jack the Ripper. Yep, we didn't have our Dalmers or our Sons of Sam, Gacy's. Uh, that whole uh, the, uh, rogues gallery of sorts. A happier time. When was the Zodiac Killer? Was that like 70s? I think so. 
All right, so so still still before then. So. <laughs> we have way too many guest stars this episode, so I'm just going to list off kind of the main three here, but there are other characters. Uh, John Federer is playing Administer Hengist. Hengist? Yes, uh, I, I, I think it was sort of pronounced like Ingus. Hengist. 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 Because it's a Rigelian name. He was actually around... He was dis- unfortunately described as like whenever they needed a weak-looking, highly pitched-voiced man. Yep. <laughs> I've actually seen him before in a movie that I very, very much enjoy called Twelve Angry Men. He's uh, he's done a, a number of ro- roles, but but not all of them were uh, you know uh, you know these you know high-pitched-voiced men. One of them was the most destructive force that has ever existed throughout all time and space. You know, Piglet from uh, Winnie Pooh, Winnie <laughs> the Pooh. Um, so he, he's also that. Beglet, yeah, and also in the original True Grit. So he's actually one of the more known actors. Uh, unfortunately, he's passed away in about 2005. I also have Charles McCalley playing Prefect Jarrus. I could find very little information on him, so he's here. But we've seen him before. Have we? Yes, he was Landrew. Oh, he was Landrew. <laughs> yeah, like 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 the the the, the hologram version. I completely missed that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Aw, Landy. Yeah, he's back in in prefect form. <laughs> also, Pilar Surratt, that's I'm very much mispronouncing, I'm sure, played Sibo, who is Jairus's wife. She was actually a fairly well-known uh, Filipino actress of this time period who has basically been in every TV show that you have heard of from the 60s. Yes, um, she stopped acting in the early 70s, but yeah, everything in the 60s, yeah, pretty much. Yeah, like Wild Wild West actually was in The Lieutenant, which is probably how Roddenberry uh, knew of her, and she's in this. Uh, She was also in Maverick, which one of the other uh, minor guest stars was also in in, in a different Maverick. Um, Do you know which one, which? No. (laughs) <laughs> uh, she was the one from the 60s uh, I think uh, the the guy who plays Morla was yeah the one from the 90s um, who, who, yeah, that was uh, Charles Durkop and then there's also Turk Joseph Bernard there's some there's a you know, dancer Kara uh, who's by, played by Tanya Lamani um, Virginia Aldridge is Lieutenant Tracy um, and some other folks yeah anyway. <laughs> I tried to limit it to people who had more than one speaking line fair enough <laughs> Just some here's some names, you know. You, you guys look them up your list yourself. Yeah, this is the one of the least bottle episodes we've gotten. They spend most of their time on a planet, and there's an entirely new like cast of people down there. Yeah, you know, there's there's sets, there's people, there's mystery. Well, shall we jump in? Yes, let's jump into the darkness. Into the hookah lounge. Yes, uh, specifically the the dark hookah lounge. We open on an an uncomfortably long and awkward belly dancing sequence, playing that nee 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 music way too much. Yes, uh, yeah, it's it gets a little repetitive, but you know, yeah. five songs. There are five songs in this series. True. <laughs> Anymore, you have to like start paying more people. <laughs> She's good at belly dancing, but I don't like yes. that they just have that for ten minutes before we pan over to the crew leering at her from a table. Yes, uh, specifically uh, Kirk uh, McCoy and Scotty. Yes, they finally let him out of engineering. They are in a Mediterranean-inspired sort of hookah lounge thing where they're all sitting at low tables on pillows on the floor. This is apparently the planet. Argalius, which is a peaceful and utterly hedonistic society. It's almost like we're going to run into these several times throughout Star Trek. Hmm. Hedonistic societies? Yes. Hmm. Ariza. <clears throat> Kirk surprises Scotty with the fact that he has asked the dancer to come join them, and this seems to bother the young man sitting next to them who gets up and leaves in a huff right before she sits down. But it's not long before Scotty invites the dancer Kara out for a walk in the thick fog that reminds him so much of Scotland. Uh, Aberdeen specifically. It's like, you would love it there. It's also foggy here, where I am. We're having a very weather-appropriate episode. It was a dark and foggy night, apparently. After he leaves, McCoy talks about how good it is that Scotty is going out to enjoy himself with a woman because he just suffered an injury from an accident that was caused by a woman. And he uses the phrase total resentment towards women multiple times. McCoy, I think you're full of crap here. Mm Mm-hmm. Just saying. 
Kirk and McCoy decide that they're going to leave and go to a little place across town where the women... Which is how it's described at least twice. Yes, uh, they're going to a brothel. No sooner do they leave, but they hear a scream outside and find Kara dead in the fog with Scotty standing nearby holding a bloody knife. She's dead, Jim, and Scotty looks spooked out of his brain. Later on, after the intro song, they're back in the empty cafe where we meet Hingist. I'm just going to stick to that one. Hingist. Hingist. I just call call him the admin or the investigator. Yeah. I might start doing that. It's an impossible pronounced name. Yes. <laughs> he is the head administrator who is not native to this planet, but is in fact from Rigel 4 because they describe the local population as incapable of governing themselves. Like good old little colonialists. Well, this is awkward. Mm. Since this is such a peaceful planet, he does not have the resources necessary to investigate a murder. And Scotty can't remember anything that happened. Not a good start. <laughs> Yeah, so you can't investigate this properly, and you only have basically the the most barest of uh, evidence that he was uh, the the murderer here. It's pretty damning evidence, though, honestly. It is, yeah. <laughs> All that we have is the fact that he was standing next to her with the knife that killed her in his hands. Yes. <laughs> but Kirk and McCoy do not believe Scotty could have done something like this flat out, but they do agree that because of his recent concussion, it could have completely changed his behavior, because that's how concussions work. Apparently in Star Trek world. We then meet Jarrus, the prefect who enters with his wife, Sibo. Landrew, you got married. People really need to go listen to some back episodes, otherwise this makes no sense. <laughs> Apparently his wife can use an ancient technique that may have been lost to history except for a few people called empathic contact to help investigate this murder like they used to in the bad old days before they all found hedonism. Yes, uh, before everyone just got really horny constantly, uh, there used to be crime and murders, and then they had to, like, investigate stuff, and so they developed psychic powers to solve that problem until they realized, oh, we could just, like, have free love and stuff. Yeah, sounds useful, psychic power murder investigations, but also the free love's probably better. I like Hippie Planet. If you're, if you're, if you're able to have free love and no murder... And the free love causes the no murder. That's probably a good deal. In order to pull off this telekinetic empathic thingy, they need to go to Jairus' home. And Investigator Hingist will track down the other people who were in the cafe while they get ready. Well, seems like we're doing some some local uh, you know, law enforcement sort of alternatives here. This is kind of cool you, know, you got sort of the local color you got your lo- local customs and uh you know and kirk's throughout the episodes kind of like hey let's like make sure we're kind of following their laws because they do technically got jurisdiction here yeah i mean that's not bad the whole it was a crime committed on their planet and we can't just you know scoop people up and leave yes Jarvis's home is more middle eastern inspired location looking stuff with the big open hall a lot of uh braziers and pillars and sort of archy shaped doors it's not bad so basically so, so basically what someone in the 60s imagines the middle east looks like kirk wants to set up something called a psycho tricorder that will be able to pull the last 24 hours of scotty's memory for them to look at seems like a useful thing they should have had before maybe i don't know it's also kind of frightening when you think about it <laughs> this will just settle the entire thing flat out Hengist is actually very against this but Jarus says they may as well because his wife still needs time to prepare for their psychic thing oh you know we can use multiple ways to investigate this crime psychic powers and technology psychic technology yes <laughs> They beam down a female lieutenant to set up the psycho tricorder, and she takes Scotty down to the basement to get the equipment working. Saibo gets ready to do her empathic thing and needs the murder weapon, which is gone. Oh no, somebody's run off with the murder weapon. You got murder and theft now? They then hear a scream from the basement. Predictably, the lieutenant is now dead and Scotty is around, but this time slumped unconscious in his chair. They are the only two people in the basement. But does he have a murder weapon on him? Don't think so. So this is getting kind of weird. Knife is gone. Again, Scotty doesn't remember a thing. They do a little bit of investigation. There was actually another entrance to the basement, but it was locked, and they have no way to know whether or not it was opened. Hengist shows up with two other people from the cafe, the musician who was playing during the dance, and the man who left just before Scotty did. 
They seem like suspicious individuals. They must be uh, conspiring with each other to murder uh, innocent young ladies on the street, clearly, right? Yes, probably. The man who left is named Morla, and he was Kara's fiancé. Wait a moment. They they know each other? This isn't a random murder? He he murdered his fiancé because of jealousy? Yep. No one likes him because he was jealous, which is very, very frowned on on this planet, because it can lead to bad feelings and violence. The other man, the musician, is actually Kara's father, and he does not like Borla at all because of the jealousy thing, but he doesn't seem to have any particular opinion towards Scotty. So maybe they didn't work together to murder her. Hmm. So no one likes Morla. <laughs> Things are, are getting more complicated than I initially thought. It's almost like there's red herrings everywhere. Sabo is once again ready to do their psychic thing. Uh, Despite Spock calling down to warn them that this telekinetic thing may be very inaccurate, they proceed with what looks like a good old-fashioned seance. Including, you know, know, fire in the middle and holding hands and and, uh, talking about mysterious things and, you know, darkness and evil and stuff. Yep, they all hold hands and Sibo senses an evil presence and says several words like Boralis, Karlia, and Redjek. Um... Are you sure you're not just the keeper of Trock in here? This is apparently an undying evil that devours all life, and then the lights go out, and she screams, the lights turn back on, and she is dead with a knife in her back with Scotty holding her. Well, this looks bad. Scotty, are you sure you don't didn't kill her this time? With all of this, Jarris agrees that they maybe should go to the ship where they can use their truthiness machine to f- continue the investigation. Because their, their initial technique is... Uh... It's, it's kind of not coming up with any good answers, only death. They go up to the briefing room where they have a lie detector doohickey, where they have Scotty sitting it and it's going to yell lying at him if he tells a lie, I guess. You're lying! The computer examines his physical condition and determines that it would in fact not give him amnesia or make him kill people. Oh, it seems like McCoy was full of crap then. <laughs> yeah. Everyone's shocked. McCoy, maybe you're not as good of a doctor as you pretend to be. <laughs> Scotty tells them that he did not actually pass out when Sivo was killed. He felt a weird thing come and kill her. You mean there was an alien presence? Mm-hmm. And the computer says he's not lying. Also, the computer confirms that he wasn't lying when he says he didn't kill Sibo, and he wasn't lying when he says that he doesn't remember the other two murders. But he does lie about his age. Yeah, just to prove that the lying machine works, I guess. Hen just is very skeptical of all of this, but thinks it's just a waste of time. Uh, Jarrus wants to continue, however, because it's an investigation and they should maybe investigate some things. Yes. You know, let's actually do our job here as opposed to just give up and just put people in. What's the punishment for this whole thing again? Slow torture. Oh, yeah. (laughs) They interrogate Morla, but he also didn't do it, according to the computer. With both subjects very, very briefly examined, Kirk now wants to look into this ghost angle. What about the dad? Maybe he had some sort of weird, wanted to murder people randomly. Ghost. Ghost, okay. Let's go for the ghost. (laughs) They asked the computer to identify whether or not a creature like this could exist. And it goes, sure, why not? There's a lot of weird stuff out there. We've already run into it. You guys should know this. Mm -hmm. You're trying to use me, the computer, to be genre savvy when you're already being genre savvy today. So, you know. They ask the computer to identify the word regec, which she said during the seance. And the computer finds that it is a proper name, Red Jack, which was also another name for Jack the Ripper. So, either she, uh, Sibu, who is now very expired, was into, uh, you know, it was a, a late 19th uh, century uh, you know, murder sprees, or she was on to something. In other words, these the other words that she said were also the names of serial killers from across time and space. <sighs> Moving throughout the galaxy on a straight line from Earth to Argalius. So obviously the killer is an immortal being that feeds on fear and kills women because they scare more easily. Kind of horrific on several levels. It's a bit of a jump. This entire scene is just jump after jump after jump of like, well, what if a ghost did it? Well, then obviously it would do this and also prey on women because it feeds on fear. Obviously. Yeah, this is the kind of speculation I sometimes do with my friends. Is like, okay, if you have this, 
what would that mean? What would that result in, in as far as reality? And the initial premise might be completely bonkers, but it would, you know, it can come up with some interesting ideas from it. But it doesn't mean the initial premise isn't also bonkers. They have the computer track spree killings of women throughout history, which finds a bunch of them on Earth, and then as humans move out, there's more and more on other planets, the most recent of which being on Rigel 4, where Hingist is from. Dun dun dun! Hingist, you know any serial killers? Because lots of people are from Rigel, so what? So they go to examine the murder weapon! Which is also from Rigel, which I guess, dun, like, dun, dun. doesn't that just prove that they were right about the thing being from Rigel? Like, if it wasn't enough to condemn him that he was from Rigel, this shouldn't be enough to condemn him now, just because they have two pieces of evidence that the thing was on Rigel? The, uh, you know, at best, it, they're, they're being pointed in the direction that someone from Rigel, perhaps within this uh, certain time period, is probably a suspect. So now let's look at everyone who may fit that description. Or they can just start to beat up Hengist to kicks and screams and bedies. You know, you know, he, he, they're technically trying to get him in the chair, but he's like, no. And then he like tries to kick Kirk in the chest. And then Kirk's like, I have too many hit points for that. And then he punches him and he, then he's dead. They try to knock him out and he dies. But then a voice from the intercom starts yelling Regek and laughing. The evil thing is in the computer now. Yeah, he's got in our computer now. Wait a moment. He he knows what's in our files. Oh, no. Don't look in that folder marked games. <laughs> he's going to race my sub files. <laughs> now he's in complete control of the ship and can kill anyone whenever. But they're all like, don't worry about it. He wants to scare us before he kills us. So we got time. Feeds on fear, remember. Fear on f- fear more or the killing more? We're not sure yet. Let's nope, find fear. out. Definitely that's not, fear. Yeah. Let's, let's hope on the fear. Yes. They decide to go to the bridge to set the computer an unsolvable problem to tie up computer resources. On the way, a door tries to slam on them and the turbo lifts goes into free fall, but they override it really easily with no problems and it was pretty immaterial and they make it to the bridge. That's probably the least spooky uh, uh, turbo lift accident that I've seen in all of Star Trek. On the bridge, everyone's trying to fix a variety of problems that keep popping up, and the voice continues to mock them with Sulu commenting that this is the first time a malfunction has threatened him. You haven't been here long enough, have you? Well, this is just the best. Like, they have this stupid tense scene that's not very well done. He's like, that's the first time a malfunction threatened me, and we both just, like, broke down laughing for ten minutes. <laughs> yep. <laughs> It's like, okay. <laughs> That's just so, it's a wildly inappropriate time to have a random joke in the middle of the episode. But, you know, for the uh, the characters, it probably is how they're trying to, like, avoid thinking about what the hell is going on here because they're just confused. <laughs> Spock managed to get things mostly working again and sets the computer to calculate the last digit of pi, which, as we all know, is impossible. McCoy also has decided to give everyone strong tranquilizers so that they won't be able to be afraid of things. I was gonna get a scared to death, but then I got high. They give it to everyone on the bridge and they start acting really, really loopy. Yep. Spinning around in chairs and such. Whee! They return to the briefing room where they left Jairus, and then the thing gets driven out of the computer because of the other thing, I guess, but they... Because too much pie. Yeah, too much pie, but it seemed, I don't know, it seemed to be working around it, and then it wasn't. It's its very, this whole last bit goes too fast, and they never explain anything. It's the sort of thing that would be maybe make it for a good, like, for a full episode, or, like, maybe, like, more than the last ten minutes, at least. There's <laughs> just too much going on simultaneously. They kind of figure that if the thing leaves the computer and tries to jump into another person, it won't be able to do anything if it goes into a body that's tranquilized. So they just start tranquilizing everyone on the ship. Just as they're discussing that, the thing leaves the computer. Kirk tells McCoy to give himself the shot, and he goes, No, I'd rather stay lucid in a very suspicious way. And then says, Do it anyway. He goes, Okay, and then gets all loopy. So, all right, I'll be cool. I'll be groovy. It's like, yeah, if you insist. <laughs> Well, maybe McCoy wanted to, uh, you know, you know, later if, when he writes the report on this, it's like, yeah, uh, I resisted the captain and objected to it, but he ordered me to do this. So it's not my responsibility if I was high, if someone had a medical emergency, I was unable to do it properly. They're just about to give the shot to Jairus because it's only him and Kirk left who aren't high yet. But then he turns and attacks them. 
but he doesn't really attack them very well. Spock knocks him out, and then he pops back into Hidges, who gets up from being dead. He grabs a woman who was there. I should mention that there, there's like a female ensign in every one of these scenes, yes. just sitting at the side. It seems like a remarkably bad idea. Like, yes, we're, we're having a bad guy entity thing that explicitly goes after ladies. And so we're going to keep reminding the audience that the, there's these there's ladies everywhere who are basically there to be victims. And that's a little weird. He holds a knife to this woman's throat, but she's too drugged up to be to care, basically. And this lack of fear seems to have made him weak because Kirk is then able to grab him and he and Spock get him to the transporter. And they, they drug him up, so he's like, we, I want to marry everyone, man, this is cool, oh. They decide they're going to beam him into space on the widest possible dispersal setting, which it's weird that the transporter has. Yeah, it's, uh, it's their emergency, we need to murder somebody uh, and do it effectively. Uh. This, this probably won't kill the immortal entity that has been there since time began, but it will spread it out enough that it's going to drift harmlessly in space for a couple of eons. And uh, it might, like, starve itself to death in the process, too, which eh, that, might, that might be good enough. Now that that's done with, Kirk really wants to go back to that place with the women. Yes. Hey, Spock. But he decides it'd be weird to go alone and everyone else is drugged up, so he just leaves. <laughs> he, he tried to sort of like was implying that he wanted Spock to go with him and the Spock's like, what? <laughs> Our murder mystery. This yeah. was very difficult to pound into something intelligible, so I hope some of that made sense. You know, there's uh, multiple locations, there's a whole bunch of characters, a whole bunch of stuff going on, uh, and you know, it's it's sort of like two or three sort of episodes kind of attached to each other in a certain way. Yeah, and, it uh, keeps switching around like that. The stakes go up and down and down again. And just, none then of everybody makes gets any high, sense. it's all cool. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, d did you think this made a good mystery or not? Oh, definitely not. They're just like, Scotty couldn't have done it, and you're like, yeah, the main character couldn't have done it. Who else could it be? Maybe the one guy who keeps saying they should stop investigating things. Oh, yeah, it was. Yeah, that, that one did become kind of obvious. Uh, you know, you know, to have a good mystery, you need, you, know, you, know, you need a certain amount of suspense. You need a certain amount of believability that the person that might, you know, is sort of fingered first as being the, the likely killer, you need that to actually make sense as far as, like, characters goes. And given the whole genre of show this is, having Scotty be the potential murderer is basically like yeah he's not actually the murderer mm. and when kirk and everyone else is like yeah he can't be the murderer they're actually going to be right because of course they are well if you wanted this to be an actual murder mystery <laughs> you're supposed to lay out the information so that the audience has a reasonable shot of figuring out what's going on not just Indeed. get to the middle of the episode and go it's a ghost computer yep. is it a ghost <laughs> yes it's definitely a ghost <laughs> so uh so it definitely also uh you know drops the ball on that whole let the audience be the uh, the number one detective thing here um they did have some red herrings with the uh, the other uh people that were sort of they brought in uh, it turns out one was fiance maybe he was jealous and then one was his dad's uh the lady's dad so he, he probably didn't do it but you never know you know maybe that, that one they kind of got right but they kind of didn't exploit it properly. Now, I did think it was actually kind of an interesting one with that they brought in so many tranquilizers at the end because I was just reading a book called The Mind Fixers, which gives a very mm. kind of um, history of psychiatric medication, which is mm. very interesting. But uh, tranquilizers were one of those things that were actually not that old at the time. They were kind of... The term was coined in 1953... 14 years before or something mm. like that? 15 years? It was, uh, they were experimenting with a drug called Rezipane, which was a tranquilizer. It had calming effects on animals. And but they, yet they, had, they call it pain. They coined, he coined <laughs> the term tranquilizer because they said what the world needs is more tranquility. I guess that makes sense, actually. And they uh, started trying to use it as an antipsychotic medication, but it didn't. You know, it puts people to sleep. It's just a sedative. It's like, well, they're they're not, you know, you know, yelling at us right now. Um, is that good enough? This is the sixties, of course it is. But it was one of the earlier psychiatric medications because the whole thing was like people are 
freaked out and doing like weird things and we want to give them some tranquility mm -hmm. so well, we'll give them some tranquility also we're going to be less stressed because of that and that's really why we're actually doing it. so you know they gave them tranquility drugs so they wouldn't be afraid of the entity that feeds on fear yep which i don't know <laughs> we don't have any way to talk about that you can't feed on emotions they're not a thing they're like yeah. an emergent description of the way that you interact with the world it's not like a thing that exists that you could eat yeah, it's like someone saying that they they have a a business model that ex, you know you know makes uh, you know, makes money off of macroeconomics. <laughs> like, okay, what about you know what what sort of parts of macroeconomics are you using? No, all of it simultaneously. It's like what <laughs> doesn't make any sense. What are you doing with your programming? I'm using the blockchain. Yep. <laughs> okay, give me money. <laughs> I have some friends who work in that that area of the industry, so they're like, yeah, everyone's just goes on stage and yells blockchain, and people go, yay, let me invest in your thing. Here's the buzzwords you need, yes. <laughs> Basically. <laughs> All right, we should talk about this interesting thing about how they can never suspect Scotty. Well, they, they, they we've already sort of you know you know uh, highlighted throughout the, you know the series so far that Scotty is by far the most competent character. <laughs> at least I, I'm going to continue to disclaim that. Uh, feel free to disagree with me, Gavin, <laughs> but you know. Um, uh, so you know the 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 options are you can make a main character the possible uh, you know a murder suspect, uh, including the most competent one. Uh, and there is a problem with that in that, as someone who is a you know, permanent cast member, if they w had actually done it and they actually face consequences for it, they're going to probably not be in the show anymore. And so you have to figure out some way for that not to actually be true. And so the audience, knowing that this is this guy's probably not going to leave the, the series in the middle of the show, show, is probably not guilty. So it's sort of a uh, self-fulfilling, uh, self, self-defeating prophecy, as it were. Well, you end up with a problem in there. Like, it doesn't work narratively because main character thing. But mm -hmm. as far as the text of the episode goes, you have, like, this is the only person who could have possibly done this, right? Yep. You find him in, like, the first situation is already pretty damning. Then you have the second and third situations in which he is, like, the only suspect you could possibly have. Mm -hmm. Yet the entire episode, no one thinks he did it. Not even yep. for a second. There's sort of like some, hmm, we have to make sure he didn't do it, but that's about it. And there's this kind of old theme. It's kind of a platonic idea. Your character is sort of set when you come into adulthood. So, you know, you're molded throughout your childhood. They agree with that. You kind of had the blank slate theories and things of that nature of like you will... You will mold your, you start with nothing and then you can be molded into whatever you're going to become as an adult throughout your childhood. And that gives you this kind of platonic thing of someone with good character can't do something wrong. Yeah, they are, they have, they are, they are inherently a good person. And so they are free from, from further, you know, from any sort of sin. So you hit on that very, very hard in this episode and they've had it kind of before with like Kirk and some things in various situations. Like if you have someone of good character, it is impossible for them to do something wrong. Therefore, since we know Scotty has good character, he can't have done anything wrong. And that's the entire text of the show. Like I mentioned several times, they had just a woman like sitting there in the, mm -hmm. on the side of the thing, but like it's in one of the, the like interrogation scene where they have, not only just Scotty, but every single person that they possibly think could have done this in the room. And they have demonstrated previously that they can, like, kill in seconds with no one seeing it when they were all, like, holding hands before. And that they're exclusively targeting women. And they can turn on all the lights, including a fire that will then come back later. <laughs> yeah, so... They, they don't think to, like, take any kind of precaution. They don't even bother restraining scotty at any point they don't bother mm -hmm. moving him to a different room they don't put him in a holding facility they don't restrain him at all because they're just so sure like this is a good man who could not have done this the problem is 
that's completely completely bogus. There, you know, people, you know, after they become uh, adults, uh, do change. They do evolve. They do pick up, uh, you know, ticks and you know quirks, and they sometimes, you know, make you know completely you know divergent uh sets of behavior from from one part of their life to another uh either do you know you know just slow evolution traumatic events build up of various factors uh or you know some 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 other thing to to sort of encourage a uh, internal change that they you know either doing it you know just naturally or by you know by some sort of choice and and so this doesn't make sense at all when you actually talk about real people you're talking about a tv show then you write into this trope and then that's just it's a TV show, it's TV logic, and you can sort of spot it quite easily. And it's like, eh, again. That still gets into this idea that, like, people become evil. There's, like, the, that's kind of the text of this show, of this episode. It's very odd that they have this being in here. And I'm trying to figure out what they actually wanted it to represent. Because it seems like there's two different aspects to this thing. Um, when they went over the whole, like... You know, this thing was Jack the Ripper, who just for completeness sake, I guess we should go into a little bit that uh, Jack the Ripper was active in London in 1888, uh, was one of Mm -hmm. the earlier serial killers, uh, probably wasn't the first serial killer, kind of the first like possibly the very first serial killer was like a guy named H.H. Holmes in uh, in uh, America. People that people noticed as far as serial killers go. He did it earlier but he wasn't noticed till later there's uh you know plenty of reason to believe that this is not a new phenomenon either as far as you know you know peel's behaviors it's hard to know so jack the ripper uh probably killed five people possibly more in the Whitechapel area of london and they mm-hmm. were particularly horrific murders with uh, organ removals and body and genital mutilations so uh, the newspapers at the time were very fascinated by it. It was also during a time of, like, social problems. This was a big slum kind of problem area with a lot of economic disparity. In fact, over the next 20 years, that part of London was completely revitalized, and they basically got rid of the slums. So mm-hmm. kind of a combination of that, the unsolved nature of the murders, with a lot of people already believing that the police of the time were incompetent, and just the the, like him preying on people in this bad economic time and situation turned the entire thing into this big kind of almost a pop culture-y thing, even though we don't think of like pop culture having existed at that time. And that got into kind of the American fascination with serial killers because there were actually a lot of speculations around the time that Jack the Ripper might be an American. America Hmm. almost wanted to claim him. Well, this guy seems like a badass. We, we maybe we want him to be one of us, huh? And then in the 1890s, this H. H. Holmes guy's murders came to light. He like was killing people in like the, I think like the 1870s, but it's, it wasn't found out until after the Jack the Ripper thing. There were actually some theories that maybe he was the same person. Uh, probably <sighs> not, but they wanted to link them up <laughs> in that kind of way. And this is arguably the kind of beginning of the serial killer infatuation that we were talking about earlier, even though it didn't come to like a complete head until like the 80s when you got a lot of very charismatic, you know, television ready serial killers. Um, Which I guess maybe that television ready sort of aspect of it can kind of play into, you know, 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 some of this here that, you know, you're you're talking about, you know, the, the the platonic idea of this is a good man and they seem friendly and nice and everything is great but they're also a serial killer at the same time that's basically that sort of thing where you someone has this veneer around them that you know, makes people think that they're just well good people and they could never do anything wrong but then they're going around murdering people yeah that does seem to be a part of it with the fascination idea of like this is someone you wouldn't ever suspect and mm-hmm. people really like the idea that you would be able to spot when bad things are going to happen. So if you hit something that's like, well, this is something you wouldn't be able to see coming. Because most killings, most murders and things are like not random. They're people that know each other. You are very, very likely, if you are going to be murdered, it's almost 100% someone that you already know. It's uh, People tend to have motives for murder. 
So this idea of just randomness in it, it takes a level of control away from people and this understanding that you're kind of trying to get back. And it's a very understanding thing. Like it's, I saw this article that was kind of equating it to this idea of like, why do people, you know, have a fascination with seeing like car crashes and things. Uh, but it's actually not an uncommon thing in nature to want to understand why something bad happened because you need to be able to understand it in order to avoid it. So we want to learn about this so we don't die. There's actually a, uh, an interesting phenomenon that they've been looking at with crows where they form large groups that kind of congregate around when they find a dead crow. There's a very specific call they give out that just draws a bunch of other crows around. They kind of call it a crow funeral. And the idea they have right now, they don't completely understand it, but the working theory is that they all come to observe the situation and try to figure out what happened. Hmm, one of us is dead. Is this natural causes was there a disease was there some sort of predator is there some some sort of new human thing that's trying to murder us oh no but that gets into this idea that i'm trying to to kind of hit on with this weird inclusion of it being an evil entity because they they say through the text of the show that this is basically the serial killer this entity is the only thing that has been doing this through all of human history and I could only see two possible ways to read that in the context of the show. Either this thing is like a representation of the dark places in humanity that they always love to talk about. This like dark mm -hmm. animalistic nature that we're always barely holding back and is just going to come out. It's going to escape and murder people. Oh no. So it's either that or it is just kind of washing your hands of this idea it's like humans wouldn't do this there's, there's just evil things that people would not do so it's this other malevolent force so we've completely uh you know othered this this aspect that we and we're going to pretend we have no uh, capability for this sort of violence hooray we love to other even the way that you were describing the things even though i don't think you necessarily ascribe to this idea it's just the way that we describe things like this is that someone starts okay and then becomes evil like they become a person capable of doing these things because they themselves have changed well, what was I, was I was trying to sort of you know you know uh, point out with that was not that necessarily people are you know always changing when they make decisions but sometimes they make decisions that they would normally make if the circumstances were aligned in a certain pattern and sometimes those decisions just happen to be horrific for everyone else uh and that might not necessarily need a change yeah you know, i just didn't get that part of my <laughs> rundown so but yeah there is a lot of so there's the two kind of ideas with this sort of evil as a thing either it's like something that people become or it's something that happens because of a certain set of circumstances and especially if you look at like you know, at this time, they hadn't looked into serial killers as much. It was definitely considered this kind of like just evil, crazy person. They didn't have as many of them. And that was even kind of the aspect of it that was carried in through like the 80s and 90s. Mm -hmm. um, well, this person has something wrong with them and we're going to kind of be studying them like some sort of thing. And maybe we can uh, figure out how to break the code and... Uh, and then write a bunch of novels about it. There's this this idea, like there's there's kind of a circumstantial aspect to all of these things. Like if you actually look at interviews and and research that people have done, like you can pretty much predict that people who do these sorts of things had really really horrible and traumatic childhoods and upbringings. It's just not uh, it's not unusual. Yeah, I'm not sure if I got anything more to really say on this there was a thing i'm trying to remember so the uh, person who like did the uh, skin lamps yeah i don't remember that one but forgive i should have had this name and i'm not remembering it right now but there was actually this this story of like one of the better known serial killers from like the 80s era was in the military for a certain amount of time they i believe they they like joined the marines and they actually were doing very well then like having that sort of structure and sense of purpose and being in that military environment they were doing very very well in it and something happened where they were discharged and after that is when 
things started going wrong and they became a serial killer. Sort of they were reliant on a certain uh, level of structure in their life. And, uh, and so they, without that, they sort of started doing their own thing. Yeah, not even necessarily reliant, just you can see that given one set of circumstances, this person is a, what we would think of as a fairly normal person, and then they're removed from that and something else happens, and in this other set of circumstances, they become this horrible serial killer that we... Mm -hmm. And the fact that we like to other these actions, like I, I understand the impulse that we have you want to look at something like this and go like that is horrible and evil and we can just discount that person from humanity and then we don't have to think about it and it's okay and we'll look at them like kind of a side zero attraction yeah, yeah but really that's only kind of a coping mechanism for us so that we don't don't have to address some of these problems and dynamics directly mm -hmm. well if you actually look at the stuff it it's like you don't want to have to understand it because you don't want the idea that this is something that people can become and that maybe given a bad set of circumstances, you could become. Which is not to say that everyone could become a serial killer, but everyone can do what you would consider evil things given the right set of circumstances. Even if you were believing that you are doing the right thing the entire time, Bad circumstances, bad situations, like different things that you need to do or have to do to survive, etc., etc. Like you can be in a circumstance where you will wind up doing something that you would consider outright evil. And this idea that you can just prevent that with good character and this kind of moralizing, it's an old idea, but it's also one that really harms our ability to be able to improve people's situations in a way that would actually prevent these sorts of things from happening so uh, yeah it's like oh well, these people are of good moral character so we're not going to build a society that will you know keep them out of these horrific civil uh, situations because we know they'll always do the right thing there was actually this particularly interesting idea that i came across when i was researching this so there's a philosopher named martha nesbaum uh, who came up with this idea called moral luck. And basically the idea is there's a certain amount of luck involved into the situations that you find yourself in. Oh, most certainly. There was, there was an example in this book of uh, you know people during the Vietnam War where a lot of really, really horrible things happened. People stationed in one part of Vietnam were in an area where there weren't civilians. So there were a bunch of horrible things happening, but there were soldiers versus soldiers. People stationed in another area were in a very civilian-heavy environment. So there were a lot of civilian casualties and a lot of horrible things happening to civilians. And basically sure. the only difference in whether or not you were in a situation where you were doing horrible things to civilians was where you happened to be stationed. So the, you know, the 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 chance of each one of these is a certain you know uh, you know you know bit of luck that some people are going to be like okay this is the horrors of war but this is kind of what you expect while other people are like this is the horrors of war and holy crap it's so much worse than I could have ever imagined. Yeah, and there's just you know there's luck involved in this. And we can change things around. We can, we can, if we improved certain aspects of society, like say we didn't have a government that felt it needed to engineer a horrible imperialistic war to fight communism. Well, it's not communism. The next one's not about communism, Gepwood. It's about uh, you, know, uh, you know, showing uh, Iran what's up. No, oh, that's true. That one's about oil. <laughs> <laughs> Shh! Don't tell them about the oil again. Oil is yeah. the new yeah, communism. Yeah, yeah. Well, I guess socialism yeah, so, is the new communism. Yeah, but uh, the Vietnam War, it's, you know, it's like, okay, we're going to have this ideological sort of excuse in order to, you know, justify all our power games, things like that. And we'll just sort of have, a, you know, you know, you know, tens of thousands of uh, people go into basically, you know, a horrific situation. And some of them are going to get lucky and some of them are not. Now, somebody please give us a lighter topic to... Oh, the... the, the uh, the thing I was going to you know, talk about was uh, I was I was kind of you know, latching on when I was watching the episode onto Scotty's uh, memory loss, you know, and so uh, I started thinking, saying, okay, let's just sort of ignore the whole 
alien entity energy being possessor sort of thing. What if Scotty actually did do it? So what's the idea? Is it moral to punish someone for something they don't remember? Exactly. That's, that's you know, you know uh, yeah, it's a lighter topic relatively, but it's still kind of dark. <laughs> well, that's like the theme of uh, there was a samurai movie. Now I'm blanking on the name that basically had that theme. There was a guy who committed a murder and then got amnesia and the whole movie is them trying to make him remember doing the murder so that they can punish him for it i can't say i'm familiar with that one yeah i wish i could remember the name offhand you know uh i was going to actually uh compare it to a episode of babylon 5 a little bit Uh, i don't remember if i brought this up uh, before it's been a while since i've talked about babylon 5 here but i mentioned straczynski earlier in this episode so you know um so it's on my mind uh but there is a episode called i think uh, waiting um, in gestemony which is a uh, biblical reference there. Uh, it's about a a monk is on the uh, station as part of like a holy order sort of situation. And uh, he seems like a nice, friendly guy and all this. And then, you know, he gets, you know, wanders through a, a bad part of the station at one point and all this weird imagery and stuff starts showing up and he's like freaking out because it's sort of, you know, it's like, it's like someone's blaming me for something or I don't know what happened. And as the episode uh, uh, rolls forward, it turns out that this guy actually had his memory erased uh, as part of his punishment for a series of uh, crimes he did uh, some number of years previous. But the victims of those crimes want revenge. And so they've come uh, to basically force him to remember in order for him to understand why he's being punished. You get into a weird place with things like this. Because you you want to get into like, oh, is it moral to punish someone for something they don't remember? But in order to decide on this, you have to actually decide what the point of what you're doing is. Yes. Yeah. You know, what what is the purpose of this punishment? Is it, you know, uh, I'm, is it vengeance? Is it so I feel better about the crime you did? Uh, because I now feel like you've suffered enough. Is it about uh, correction? If it's about correction, then... If someone doesn't remember what they did, and the them that exists as is is you know you know if, would would if you put plop them in the same situation if they would not do it in that case then there's no really a point. Um, so yeah, there, there's some you know <laughs> depending on what kind of uh you know reason for your your, your what you're trying to uh, enact punishment it can vary uh, quite a bit. Yeah, well the the prevention aspect of punishment is working off of a behaviorist interpretation that where you pretty much recognize and fully admit doesn't work because otherwise like if if that kind of punishment worked you would only need to do it once and then no one would ever commit a crime again yes (laughs) there are two kind of aspects to the punishment idea you can be doing it for the victims of the crime which would be more of a revenge style thing, like they feel better because they see that someone got punished. But the actual context around that is more societal, uh, because mm-hmm. by punishing someone, you are saying, we recognize that the thing this person did was wrong, and we all agree that what happened was wrong. So in that aspect, it's somewhat useful just for the acknowledgement of the thing that happened was bad and we agree that it's bad and we demonstrate that we think it's bad as a society by punishing the person who did it. So sort of a, a more of a, a, a statement for, you know, what the society's values are as opposed to a statement of you probably shouldn't do this. So in fact, if you are looking at it in the way that we're using punishment now, whether or not the person who did it remembers is immaterial because if other people are aware that they did it, you have to punish them in order to keep up the idea that what they did was unacceptable. Is this a good good way to be? Probably not. <laughs> well, the thing that I've always found very fascinating with our idea of, of crime and punishment, especially in the United States and a lot of other kind of Western English-speaking nations, I'm not as familiar with other countries, um, is that we seem particularly uncaring to what the victim needs or wants like the punishment of the criminal seems to be the thing that everyone focuses on it's very much more a societal endeavor the victim is more or less immaterial the victim is sometimes in fact used as a means to get to the uh you know the uh, uh, the, uh, the, the you know the perpetrator of the crime even if that hurts the victim in the process 
Now, there's actually a um, there's actually a movement that's been going around recently, uh, which they've been doing some experimentation with, and it's an interesting idea. It's called restorative justice, and they take the idea that you should be looking more at restoring the harm that was done, which is a much more victim-centered approach. Like something negative happened to a person, and you need to restore the harm. Now you need to fix what happened. And a lot of the times what they do is they will take the victim and the perpetrator and they will sit them down with like a moderate mediator and they talk to each other and reach kind of a mutual understanding of what happened and what needs to change and what needs to be done moving forward in order for it to feel okay. Because it's a lot more about the psychology of like something bad happened and that kind of breaks a certain idea of how things should be and you need to repair the damage that was actually done by this action. I guess the, the question about that for you then is uh, what happens in the cases of murder? Because uh, you know, it's, it's more difficult to restore things for the person who is the, you know, the core victim there. Well, there was uh, a... I'm guessing that it's more of a for everyone around them or... It would be for people around. It would be sort of a societal thing. So uh, there was actually this interesting story a while ago of a, a man whose daughter was murdered and he became kind of obsessed with the idea as to why the person did it. And he actually went and talked to the person in jail and became friends with them. Like he became friends with the person who killed his daughter because they spent a lot of time talking to each other. And uh, he understood that the person who did it had regrets about it, and they talked about it and kind of had this, this kind of situation. And the person was still in jail because it's a society, that's how we're dealing with these things, to say, like, this person did something that we deem completely unacceptable. But the, the family member, who was arguably the one who is most harmed, because the person who is killed isn't really suffering anymore, there's nothing you can really do at that point, so you need to take care of the people who are suffering now. So the person who was actually like the most harmed by this action uh, got to a much better place with it by talking to the person and understanding what happened and reaching this kind of idea. And it, that one kind of happened more spontaneously. But uh, you know, that might not be necessarily good enough for other folks. It definitely need to be a case-by-case -case basis. Well, there's just an idea that there was a harm done, and it there's something that needs to happen in order to deal with that. Actually, it kind of got into this other thing that I I didn't know if I would uh, get a chance to work in or not. But there's this Do interesting it. well, there's an interesting thing that I that has had my attention drawn to recently, uh, which is this this concept called themis, which is an themis. old it's an old Greek word that we don't actually have a translation for, uh, but it's it's something like the moral workings of a society it's like what is good and proper it's been kind of used to mean like social values or you know general morality but not in the kind of same sense that we use it in now uh, but it's basically just how things should function in a fully moral and right society sort of the um, idealized version of the society Sort of, yeah. It was it, like Homer used it kind of as a byword for social order. But we, do, we don't have a word for this really. But you would hit things like that. So like you would have the themis and something like a murder or an injustice breaks it. Like it goes against what you would consider good and moral. So you need to do something to restore that harm that was done to your you know societal entity to your moral good yeah so you, 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 something happens that kicks things out of balance and this is the the uh, you know the, what is necessary to get it back to that balance again then yeah and you do wind up with some things like you said you know it's kind of an individualistic situation like anyone who was harmed might have different ideas but the idea with kind of the restorative thing isn't that you are just letting the victim dictate what should happen. Oh no 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 no! <laughs> you know, this, you know, other you know, because there are some people, you know, some victims who are kind of assholes and would demand all sorts of horrible. Well, things. they're in pain. They are in a bad situation. They might like be angry and say that they want to see the person killed. If you sit down and all actually talk about it, you might 
reach a different conclusion or a better place with it. Well, what I'm saying is, you know, like after they've done the, you know, the basic stuff that, you know, there are some people's like, well, no, I want, I, I want more from them and I don't necessarily need that to get, you know, get, you know, uh, meet that, you know, uh, standard res- restoration, but because of I, you know, my own uh, character flaws, I'm going to keep demanding things. Uh, and so you can, you know, it can be a system that, you know, if it is totally dictated by the, you know, the the victim, uh, can be abused. Yeah, well, you aren't dictating what's going to happen. You're trying to reach a place where everyone. See, this is the thing. Like, it it sounds simplistic, but at a very basic level, something bad happened to a person, and it made them feel bad. Mm-hmm. And you want to get things back to a place where they don't have to feel bad anymore. In addition to like, and there's some things like if someone has something stolen from them. You can return the thing to them, and that takes care of like the physical harm that was done. But there's still a certain amount of a breach of trust in society. Like this is something that wasn't supposed to happen. So this restorative aspect is for that kind of thing. You, you came into my house and you, you messed with my stuff. And yeah, you need to get yeah, to a place where you feel like society can function again, which is something that we've missed out on. It's a lot of the problems that we have with people who go through traumatic and horrible events as we are completely missing out on that aspect of justice in our system. Themis is also a, uh, a Greek deity, I believe, right? Yeah, she was one of the Titans. Titans, yes. And was often the was kind of justice. Childrens of Ur- Uranus and Gaia. Yeah. yeah. It's often kind of like the goddess of justice and law. Which is like just that kind of concept. Scales of things. Basically any, basically any of these Greek concepts had an associated god. Well, we've run over and I feel like we've gotten a, quite a ways away from serial killings. Probably mercifully. <laughs> Hooray! You could try to uh, talk about uh, you know what things might cause be- uh, memory loss. Uh, uh, energy beings or not, but... Uh, Uh, Maybe we could use that for another time. Yeah, I think so. So is it time to move on to the galaxy's favorite game show? Hey, everybody, I hope you're having a wonderful day and a wonderful evening, wonderful night, whatever time it might be for you. We've had our various contestants, and there was a lot of contestants this week. All t- they do their, you know, answer their questions, uh, perform their, their weird tasks and their physical challenges, all that. And so we've we managed to uh, tally up some points, and we're ready to uh, hand out the awards. Our first award is the Puppet Master's Award, which goes to that weird energy being formerly known as Jack the Ripper for not only taking over people's bodies, but a ship's computer. Wow, that was amazing, Gapwin. What does it win? The energy being formerly known as Jack the Ripper wins a horror anthology theater, one of those places that just plays old slasher movies, because it feels like there's easier ways to feed on fear. So you just invite a bunch of people in, show some movies, and you're like, yes, more. Oh. Excellent, excellent, excellent. Our second award is the Pleasure Planned Award, which goes to Jaris and everybody from Argelis uh, 2 for their commitment for a hookah lounge on every street and a brothel in every dark alley. What do they win, Gepwin? Argelius wins the Just Rise Award, because apparently this is just something they need in Star Trek for it to function, and it's weird. Everybody has to get laid, apparently, so I guess they have planets for it now. Our third and final award today is the Holistic Detective Award, which goes to Sibbo for her seance empathic powers to divine the nature of their real killer. What does she win, Gepwin? Sibbo wins some good acting roles because it was depressing the way that her acting was described on Wikipedia and that she keeps getting given like weird mystic-y Asian women characters. Yeah. Uh, good luck, uh, lady. Uh, uh, I hope you uh, had much more luck that was less awkward than this. Hmm. Yes, I hope that you all enjoyed the awards. This episode was too depressing for yeah. super interesting <laughs> awards. So I hope you had some fun. <laughs> Thank you for joining us on the Galaxy's Favorite Game Show! Ugh, next episode's gonna be refreshing after that one. It's gonna be a little more goofy. Goofy and fuzzy. And soft 
and prone to massive bouts of reproduction. We finally got there. The episode that everyone remembers from original series, the one episode, which yep. I don't know why right. this isn't the best one if it's the one thing everyone remembers. Is a, is a is alliteration with a tr- in the title technically sort of kind of and it's uh, you know it, there's some goofiness and there's things that fall on Kirk's head and he's like oh, really and so yeah it's it's there's there's all these small moments and you know that's why they did a DS9 episode that's basically the same episode again that's the Star Trek episode so good they did it twice the trouble with tribbles woot <laughs> now uh, uh and there's also some Klingons in this one, but we're mainly, it's mainly a for the Tribbles. They're Klingons. It's Tribbles and Tribbles and Tribbles. They're little fuzzy, fuzzy balls that coo. And they, they sort of purr. They coo. They eat all your grain. Sometimes they so much grain that it's poisoned and they die. And then they climb up the walls. It's kind of weird. Apparently inspired by the short story Pigs is Pigs, which I'd guinea never pigs? heard of. They do kind of like, look like guinea pigs. Or ears, or mouths. Yeah, they eat apparently, but no one knows how. This is probably the single, the single episode that I have seen the most times. Yep, it's the one that I'm the most familiar with from original series. I'm pretty sure I could write the synopsis right now. Well, well, Gepin, why don't you just tell us everything in this next episode already? <laughs> anyway, <laughs> so hopefully we'll have a lot more fun, and you can find out whether or not we wind up being able to make this one depressing. Next week on Watchers of Tomorrow. Next time on Watchers of Tomorrow, Trials and Tribulations, Part 1. You have been listening to Watchers of Tomorrow, a podcast on science fiction media. Find and follow Watchers of Tomorrow on Podbean, YouTube, Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Pocket Cast, Spreader, Digital Podcast, and perhaps many more to come. If you enjoy our podcast, make sure to subscribe for more. And where possible, make sure to rate your experience or leave us a review. You may find Gepwin on youtube.com slash Gepwin and Twitter at Gepwin. You may find me, Dr. Isix, on youtube.com slash Dr. Isix and Twitter at IzixLP. Music is Waveform and Maury's Principal, both by DRKRN. You can also check out the Watchers of Tomorrow Discord channel. Make sure to share the experience with your friends, family, enemies, and alien overlords. If you feel you are suffering from transporter syndrome, please be aware that the next time you step off the transporter, that you, that is now, no longer exists. <laughs> <laughs>